Hello, this is Experience.Computer, an interview show about creativity, perception, and expression. I'm Jay Springett, and for most of my life, I believed that picture this was just a metaphor. That was until 2022 when I discovered something about myself. I have aphantasia, the inability to voluntarily create mental images in one's mind. In this episode, I lead philosopher Reza Negrastani through a series of imaginative exercises, and then we discuss the experience of handling ancient relics, his favorite video game, interactions between a user and AI, the concepts of consciousness and intelligence, and more. So let's begin. Hello, Reza. Welcome to experience.computer. Hello. Nice to meet you. Absolutely. My pleasure. For the benefits of the people at home, would you please introduce yourself? Yes. First, thank you for inviting me. My name is uh, Reza Negarasani. Uh, I'm a philosopher and um, I have uh, done, you know, some experimental fiction uh, early on. But uh, really, my focus is philosophizing. And uh, my latest philosophical uh, book is Intelligence and Spirit. It is a, some sort of uh, kind of investigation into uh, the meaning of general intelligence at the intersection of German idealism, you know, theoretical computer science, and philosophy of mind. And I have done, uh, as I said, I, I don't consider it as a hobby, but as side projects, which nevertheless remain philosophical to an extent, because whatever I do has a, a stain of philosophizing. Uh, I have done this uh, comic uh, with my great friend, uh, Keith Telford, who's a great comic artist, uh, named Chronosis. And it came uh, a couple of years back I would call it a sui generis comic uh, about the nature of time, uh, where the protagonist is time itself. Uh, and of course, uh, I think that uh, it's kind of like primed me to uh, you know, bring some of my more, uh, I would say, philosophically esoteric you know, thoughts uh, into some sort of cohesion that is uh, concerning the question of time. So. Currently, I'm working on a small book on time consciousness as the true form of the unconscious, you know, uh, using some insights from Freud, uh, moving toward Husserl, uh, and onwards, uh, yeah, working on what I call the vicious transparency of time. And so that's my general uh, projects and where I'm headed. So as a working philosopher, what do you do on the day-to-day? From day-to-day, my day-to-day people who uh, usually come, first of all, I'd hardly uh, leave the house. Uh, I have this uh, fortunate uh, enough to have this nice house, very uh, kind of like the house captures my characteristics. It's a very old house, and uh, I just sit down and think, but mostly my day-to-day, uh, I'm doing you know, regular chores, menial labor, gardening, uh, woodworking, cleaning, this sort of stuff. 
But the thing is that while I am doing this sort of stuff, I, I have the habit of thinking and thinking constantly. And that creates a certain sort of conflict with the attention that I have to you know, give to this sort of menial labor. And that creates usually catastrophes, absent-minded episodes, so on and so forth. Can you describe to me the room that you are sitting in right now recording this episode? Yes, uh, it's a um, it's a sunroom uh, with kind of dark gray uh, stone slabs, you know, uh, massive doors, high arches, uh, and uh, mostly made of wood, uh, the walls uh, made of the stucco, uh, some plants in it, uh, you know, uh, succulents and stuff, uh, some books which have nothing to do with my occupations and gardening books, and uh, essentially a table uh, which is, you know, kind of uh, transparent. I like this room precisely because, you know, uh, it gets, uh, in contrast to the rest of the house, uh, it gets, you know, the most amount of light uh, and quite actually warm. Uh, it is, it has a sense of uh, what you might call to be, uh, you know, a kind of like a airy gothic atmosphere, which is, you know, kind of... Um, in contrast to the Gothic architecture, it, it, it is very airy and sunny. So it's kind of a start, uh, you know, uh, conflicting in its uh, characteristics. So that's why I prefer it. And the sun is uh, shining right now, presumably? Yes, yes, absolutely. Wonderful. So we're going to start with our show's traditional first question. I would like you to shut your eyes and I'd like you to picture a ball on a table and then roll the ball off the table onto the floor. Okay, open your eyes again. What color was the ball? Hard to say, uh, maybe gray or white. Hmm. And what material was the table made out of? Again, hard to say, I didn't really imagine uh, and the material of the table. Yes, just the shape mm. of it. Just and the shape. That was quite, quite rough shape yes and was the the shape of the table similar to the table that you're sitting at right now or is it a dinner table mm. oval in shape yes and which direction did the ball roll from the from the center to the side not toward me and uh, i don't know where i was actually let me i mean uh, reflectively i probably in the corner of the room so it wasn't mm. really close to me Oh, so the table was, was quite far away then? Yes. And can you picture any other details about the room that you imagine the table being inside? Uh, again, um, it's just quite actually interesting. And this is not just this, but any sort of quite of uh, fantasy imagination that I am. Mm -hmm. um, by the fantasy, I mean it like phantasm. Yep. Uh, has has made of uh, fundamentally uh, minimal, you know, architecture and shape. So it's more like an ambient space. I mm -hmm. don't really see the room. 
I'm just trying to think of the um, best way of describing it. Like, obviously, I have no idea what it's like to even picture a room or a ball on a table. So is it more like you are have an ambient awareness of the space in the same way that you'd be aware of the room in the pitch black? Yes, uh, I would say that a good example of it is when you are actually doing a 3D model and the, the, the ambient space is just black. Mm-hmm. Like in Blender? Yes. And if you were to picture an apple? Yes. Is it also gray? No. It has color? Yes, red and yellow. Is it shiny or is it matted? No, shiny. That's interesting that your apple has color, but the uh, <laughs> flight of imagination, the ball on the table, less so. Do you have any objects that you can immediately recall from your childhood that you used to play with? Yes. Um, I remember my parents uh, bought me a, a box of uh, tools, you know, a wrench, but these are the miniature sizes, mm-hmm. hammer, a wrench, you know, a screwdriver. And I used to play with them and I still have some of them. Uh, they're quite, uh, they're German made. So they're really as sturdy as a real tool, but miniature sites. Mm-hmm. Can you picture those with colors too? Yes, I completely, yes. Uh, the hammer, I remember the handle was red. The, you know, the head of the hammer was black. The wrench was black. The screwdriver was blue. Yes. That's very interesting. I wonder if it's because it's a memory that you that you're having all this extra sort of imaginative sense data rather than something that's being mm, self-realized in the imagination. Yes, yes, uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the things actually I uh, forgot to tell you about the details of that ball. Mm, it was a strange. When the ball fell off the table, uh, I could actually see the ball falling off the table, but the image for it was like uh, almost a waterfall. So I saw the ball falling off the table. That trajectory was like a waterfall, exactly mm. like a waterfall. So there was a kind of a strange synthesis of different sort of imagery that don't belong there. Mm. Yes. Uh, whereas in memory was, you know, as you say, uh, there was a kind of, you know, uh, reproduction of, a, of something of the past object that I'm quite familiar mm. with. The falling of the ball off the table, mixing with the waterfall, seems to me that there's some sort of connection there with the sense of falling or the, um, you know, the way that the water sheets down and then the ball falling is, is connected together. Yes, I would say that uh, rather than the sensation, the act of falling, and that act the of act. falling can mm. can be a placeholder for so many other instantiations, you know. Let's try something else that's very similar to that. Instead of just picturing an apple, I'd like you to imagine holding your hand out in front of you and imagine holding the apple in your hand. Uh-huh. Can you feel the materiality of the outside of the apple? Yes. I can feel that myself. It's like, that's like sort of, not plasticky, but there's like a resistance when you run your thumb across the apple. Yes, and, and kind of uh, like as if it has been oiled, there is a slipperiness. Mm-hmm. 
but not yeah. slippery quite. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, that there's this sensation of the resistance of the skin on your thumb, but there is also that, I guess, the smoothness of it. Yes. And can you imagine throwing the apple in the air and catching it? Yes. And the sensation of it going up in the air and then landing again? Is that sort of as accurate as you would imagine gravity to be? I, I would say so, yes. And what about passing the apple from one hand to another, just throwing it? Okay, yes, I can do that, but I cannot imagine uh, passing it from that hand again back to the other. Oh, fascinating. Which hand did it leave from and what? And where did you catch it? Obviously from my right hand to my left hand, and then uh, the process stopped and left to the right. You know, I've done quite a bit of juggling in, in my life. So I wonder if that's why my left hand has some sort of sensation like baked in. Yes, I, I, absolutely. Uh, I have noticed also there was this, uh, this I become, uh, became aware of this uh, quite actually late. Mm -hmm. uh, that to this day, uh, I have a hard time tell the difference between my left hand and right hand that I have to think about it. Uh, it. Obviously, this is associated with a certain form or overlaps certain sort of characteristics of dyslexia. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing happens, for example, in English language pronouns. Uh, he or she are always mixed, even today. I am semi-fluent in English language, but I can even, uh, you know, uh, with people that I know, sometimes when I'm trying to you know, refer to them, uh, like close friends in the conversation, mm. he or she gets mixed up. Mm. Certain sort of, uh, this sort of left and uh, right hand uh, always gets mixed up, particularly when someone is driving, asking me to say, reading a map, should I turn left or right? And I can't really act on it fast to, mm. so I have to think about it. And usually that creates a, you know, uh, an awkward situation. Yeah, of course. And is the sensation that you experience in that moment where left and right is confused? Confused isn't the right word, but I'd like to use, but it's the closest one that I'm reaching for right now. But the moment of, of the sensation of the left and right and also the, the pronouns, does it feel similar? Yes, uh, yes, yes. Mm. They have a certain sort of, uh, I would say, orientational uh, characteristics. That this mm. orientational is not uh, quite discreet in my mental yeah. imagery. Yes distinguish them, you know, crisply. So speaking of crisp, I'd like you to picture or imagine the apple in your hand once again, and I'd like you to put it to your mouth and bite in to the imaginary apple. Yes. Can you describe sensations, sounds, or, you know, what was that experience like? Yes, the sensation uh, definitely uh, started with crisp and then uh, slowly 
in a gradational sort of way becomes soft, but I wouldn't call it soft really. Uh, you know, it's a certain sort of uh, qualia for which I don't have a good vocabulary. So would you say that that initial bite is like the clearest thing that you can imagine? You know, the way the teeth break the skin, the apple, right? And then after that, it fades away? Precisely, as you said, precisely by association of mm -hmm. the contact of my teeth and the sound that it produces, that crispness it becomes defined. And after that, there is no sound, there is no association. And then we are simply falling in, in the abyss of certain <laughs> sort of qualia that I cannot yeah. really describe. So it was a very clear apple sound? Yes. Yeah. Uh, in a kind of a uh, um, blunted sort of way, you know, it's kind of, it's loud. Uh, um, it always re uh, reminds me of uh, when you are trying to um, cut any sort of, you know, melon. Uh, as, as, you know, you cut it, uh, you know, when the knife uh, you know, touches the surface uh, part, which is hard, mm. it makes that, you know, blunted sound. And then when it gets to the soft, you don't really hear it, it gradually fades away. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting um, topic there that you bring up, like cutting things with a knife. Can you imagine chopping a spring onion? Uh-huh. Hard for me to imagine this one. Oh, really? Yes. Can we pick another vegetable, perhaps? Carrot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say carrot is a resistance uh, mm -hmm. that uh, sticks out for me. The resistance that of the carrot uh, being hard and kind of, you know, uh, it, is, it is kind of the reverse of the watermelon. So mm -hmm. the knife goes in kind of smoothly, but the, uh, you know, the center part of it, the stem, uh, gets hard, and then you have to push a little bit further. Can you imagine the smell of the carrot? Yes, yes. Uh, fresh carrot, yes, absolutely. I, uh, yeah, yes. slightly sweet. Slightly sweet. It has a very distinct smell, and uh, you can always. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe this is again kind of an associative memory. It reminds me of uh, fresh carrot juice. Okay. Yes, uh, which has a which has undertone of earthiness. Mm. Sweet, okay. but always the undertone of earthiness. Yeah, I would also say the same thing. I can definitely. I imagine the smell of a carrot, that there's that earthiness there. So I haven't done this before. Can you imagine holding the, the apple and putting it on the table that we looked at earlier next to the ball? Uh-huh. Yes. And if we were to look at the apple on the table and consider what we've spoken about, the touch, the smell, the sort of the motor feeling of its weight throwing it up in the air the taste the sound of it if i was to say the symbolism of an apple what happens in what sense a better question is when you are imagining an apple 
is there any sense that there is also the symbolism of an apple that is coming along with it? Oh, for me, apple is just an apple. It's just an apple. Yeah. But if I say the symbolism of an apple, does that then now become a point of consideration? Interestingly, when you said uh, this, I noticed that actually uh, when I touch the apple or imagine the apple, it's just an apple. It, the, the, the symbol is if unless I actually exert some extra mental effort, the symbolism mm-hmm. doesn't arise. So for me, if someone was to say the symbolism of an apple, it would be like a light going on in a room that's now this, this is a new terrain or a subject that's under discussion permissible. What would be that symbolism for you? For me, the symbolism of the apple is obviously the apple on the tree in Genesis. It's associations with knowledge, also perhaps the golden apples um, from the Greek myths. It would all just be there. It's it's quite interesting. Uh, So coming from a Middle Eastern culture that even though that should be there, right? But it, it is not really for me there. For example, if you had said a pomegranate, of course, really fast, the pomegranate makes a symbolism precisely because during the Persian New Year, pomegranate, you know, uh, basically represents the colorfulness uh, of a spring and, you know, uh, the triumph of the dark, the light over the dark. Mm-hmm. And that's really uh, a book for the apple. Uh, it seems that because of a certain sort of, you know, uh, cultural background, it resists my act of symbolization. Fascinating. That's really interesting. I'm really glad that you, that you brought up the pomegranate because the, the, the fact that if you were to imagine a polygramate, you, all the symbolism arrives is very similar to the way that I think about the apple, you know. So moving on from apples, I'd like to talk about books. If you were reading a fiction book, do you see images like watching a movie? No. No. So you don't see any sort of, any kind of um, visual imagery that goes along with the fiction? No, I actually see imagery, but that imagery is quite faint. Uh, The words for me uh, do the trick. Uh, Mm. And the same thing I have noticed that this is something that's hard for me to describe is that, uh, you know, uh, always people ask me, uh, what language do you think when you are thinking? It is really hard for me to say uh, what language I am thinking. And this has nothing to do whatsoever that, you know, uh, I'm a native Farsi speaker, uh, but I write in English. Even when I was not actually writing in English and only knew Farsi, I could not actually tell people that I am really thinking in Farsi. It doesn't have a certain sort of, uh, you know, uh, explicit linguistic texture. It's right. very faint. Uh, I, I heart, and the same thing goes with when reading fiction. I think. But that thing doesn't have explicit uh, linguistic characteristics, like as if it is a, of, of a specific language. It doesn't have a specific imagery. Uh, faint, the rhythm, the style of the words are how I actually perceive the imagery. Do you read poetry? 
Uh, I used to, yes. Mm. I was a junkie. I am thankfully, yeah. I am thankfully <laughs> uh, quitted that habit. Because <laughs> it's interesting that you say about the words and the rhythm. I'm just wondering about like the way that poetry compresses so much information down into four or five words. When you read the poem, or have the rhythm of the words, the symbolism, or perhaps the imagery that the poem is or the line is trying to evoke, and then you have the poem itself as a, as a, as a single container. Yes, uh, you see, uh, poetry, that's absolutely, I would say that, you know, uh, it, uh, when it is done correctly, it does not create a specific images. It makes quasi-pictures or qu has a quasi-pictorial characteristics. And this is one of the reasons that to this day uh, I am a big fan of Imagistic uh, movement, like, uh, you know, uh, particularly H.D. Hilda Dolittle. Right. And, and I remember when I first uh, read her, uh, you know, uh, poems and the way that she described a pool uh, full of dark water and she used a certain sort of um, geometric shapes that were supposed, or like an array of correct characteristics that were supposed to qualitatively compress or capture a pool of water without in any way imagine a pool of water. Right. Would you be able to send me that poem at some point? I'd, I'd yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, the imagistic poetry, uh, absolutely, I would say that, you know, is the, the pinnacle of, uh, avant-garde poetry still to this day is quite for me it's like uh, it shows that uh, you know the nature of poetry uh, is a, it's a certain sort of uh, imagination that, that is not really attached to perception mm. uh, yeah and it, it produces a, what I would call uh, the order of second appearances so they are not the same sort of appearances that we simply perceive through sensorial, you know, uh, stimulation, but a different sort of order of appearances. And that makes it quite fundamentally powerful. Perhaps I'm crossing wires a little bit just with the use of the term second order. The idea that the, the fact that you can recall or imagine an apple and the spanners from your childhood, but being asked to see a ball on a table is almost a second order thing because it's a production rather than a reproduction. Is it, uh, so how, um, okay, this is, I need to ask your permission, how much I can get into the philosophy of this at this point? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Okay. Um, so maybe for our uh, listeners, I should point to something here. I mean, in the history of uh, philosophy, uh, I think that Kant is the first one who, uh, of course, Hume first, uh, but Kant systematically, you know, brings uh, imagination, and, you know, uh, to philosophy as a transcendental function uh, that that basically makes any perception possible. So uh, the, uh, that's why it's called transcendence function, precisely because uh, if the 
perception is possible. Imagination plays a key role in it. In fact, the main role, uh, you know, providing concepts with this image. And then the problems uh, happen here that uh, when we are trying to, um, you know, um, talking about an object, we are talking about a series of problems like a perceptual identity of an object through time, uh, you know, synthesizing the manifold of intuition, seeing the profiles of the object uh, that are not available to us, right? So on and so forth. But then I noticed that there are holes in Kant's idea of imagination uh, that, that no matter how much I try to uh, say that everything is good, they are not really that great. So I came uh, to reading a, a philosopher that for a very, very long time I avoided reading. Um, and then I noticed that this philosopher is quite actually bizarre very complex, even by uh, my most outlandish uh, standards. And I have seen outlandish philosophers in history of philosophy. And this philosopher is Edmund Husserl, right? Heidegger's teacher. And I'm particularly, I've been, uh, for the past few years, I've been reading this uh, massive tome uh, of his, this collection of writings uh, in the late uh, 1910s and early 1920s called um, Fantasy, Image Consciousness and Imagination. And Husserl uh, actually doesn't think that imagination uh, has a transcendental function, has nothing to do with uh, making perception possible. But imagination has a life of its own, and it has a different sort of it has a different sort of act, uh, right? That lines in parallel with perception. Uh, it has its own time, in fact. That is actually really interesting. Mm -hmm. So he he talks about something called productive reproduction. Productive reproduction. That that obviously. When we are imagining, for example, a ball uh, in, in your uh, scenario, there is that fantasy uh, has something to do with memory, right? But fantasy is not simply memory uh, on a couple of grounds. First of all, when we are talking about memory, memory obviously... Uh, takes as its presupposition the existence of a real object of perception, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Whereas fantasy suspends this sort of judgment, right? Mm -hmm. This doesn't bring it to conflict with perception that you say that fantasy is dealing with a, a fantasial uh, existence and you know, perception with real uh, objects. In fact, the conflict doesn't arise so long as um, either perception or fantasy don't impinge on one another, right? So there is no conflict. It's just parallelism. Mm. And uh, so, yes, so it works with memory, but this memory is presented in its own time, the time of fantasy, which is not the time of memory, right? 
And that's actually quite interesting. This sort of what you might call to be a relocation of an object imagined from the time of perception or of memory to the time of fantasy allows us to manipulate object in a different sort of way. Essentially, what this is what Husserl says that we can uh, play around with uh, what he calls position taking. Position taking is the jargon for taking object as, for example, I could have the ball instead of the ball that you said, I could have a cube with rounded edges, sufficiently rounded edges. You know, it still would be a ball for me, right? Mm -hmm. So these are, these are called neutralized position takings, meaning that they are empty. They are not really correspond with the exact memory of object, precisely because they have their own time. And yeah. then you can mod mod modify them, modify mm -hmm. them sufficiently to be fundamentally of a different nature. But nevertheless, there is a connection with that reproductive memory, right? But again, this reproductive memory has uh, attained a productive function, right? It can be sufficiently manipulated, played with. You know, I went through the first 36 years of my life believing that picture this was a metaphor. But if someone wanted me to shut my eyes and picture a ball on a table, what's actually going on, perhaps, is that I am picturing the concept of a ball <laughs> right. on the concept of a table. The same way as you were, you were talking about how a, a cube with rounded edges for all intensive purposes to someone who is visualizing would be a ball. But to me, it could also be a cube with rounded edges. Does that make any sense? Yes, that, that absolutely, that brings basically essentially that's uh, one of the perennial uh, questions of the difference between perception and mental imagery, right? Uh, that uh, the concept, of course, uh, you know, have a certain sort of inferential valence that allows you to have certain sort of variations, but not too much deviations from variations for an image to fall under that concept, right? Uh, so it has a kind of a, like a top-down uh, uh, influence on the sort of stuff that you can assemble under the concept, right? But then there is, you have a bottom-up uh, sort of uh, way uh, of approaching this um, by diversifying the variations and uh, see whether they are actually falling in a kind of a makeshift manner, falling under that concept or not. Mm -hmm. in an, so a cube with rounded edges, I would say, is a makeshift image that can fall under the concept for a, for a given a certain sort of purpose here yes. in the yes. act of imagination. For other sort of, if the imagination becomes then a specific, then we see that no, the the cube with uh, around the edges would be just a cube, wouldn't be a ball. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering about if we can concretize this in a different way. Have you ever been in the presence of something that we, mm, in English, would probably use the word uh, relic or 
sacred object. Yes, yes. I, I uh, when I was uh, uh, in a school, uh, I had a friend. Uh, I actually had many friends who were archaeologists, and they were taking me to archaeological dig sites. And this is where Cyclonopedia comes from, you know, my, my first novel. So I'm quite aware of that sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it awe, but a certain sort of um, uncanny confrontation with a deep object. A deep object is a fantastic description. And do you remember how you felt either handling or seeing one of those objects? Yes, uh, I remember the first one uh, was an ornate piece of pottery, uh, broken. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first thing was the smell of it, damn. Mm -hmm. uh, still, surprisingly, it had sharp edges. You think that, you know, uh, an object being uh, so old, you know, buried, uh, the edges can get blunt, but it was sharp edges. But ultimately, what was fascinating, at least in that scenario, it wasn't really the object, but the atmosphere, the context, the, the dust, the smell of dust, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the people, uh, you know, yelling at each other, uh, you know, instruments, uh, always. So the, the imagistic, again, association that I have the best, uh, you know, uh, to describe this, and of course it's the most vulgar one, is uh, that sequence in Exorcist, where Father Marine goes to dick side and yes. uh, he sees the, the statue of Pazuzu. And then you see that there is, uh, you know, the the uh, the call of prayer, the uh, and people are, uh, you know, using shovel, and so you can see that 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 ambient space is absolutely part of, uh, for me at least, that part of that sort of architectural, uh, archaeological, you know, context for that object that I cannot dissociate that if someone handed that piece of. Uh, broken pottery to me outside of that context for me it would be just like anything else yeah so, so the so in some ways i mean you were talking about your sunroom in the introduction and how the let's say the word vibes of the sunroom you know make yes. it feel and do you think that that the context in which thoughts take place in are important in terms of i don't want to say the production of meaning because i don't actually mean that sequence of words, but do you think that the, the thoughts that you, you're thinking the thoughts with are influenced or even perhaps they come easier in a architectural or environmental? Um... Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I mean, uh, I'm quite fascinated by this sort of uh, stuff. Yes. I, I mean, probably you uh, know him, our friend Pelik. Gritzer, who has written this uh, very interesting uh, piece called uh, Theory of Vibe, where vibe is, you know, being understood as a kind of a qualitative compression, right? And I think that, yes, uh, architecture for me has, has always had that sort of atmosphere, but I wouldn't call it, you know, 
architecture in the this real architecture, but any sort of what you might call to be a vibe, really. Yes. Um, and I've been reading uh, quite a lot as as a kind of you know um, uh, hobby. Uh, I I am not uh, actually quite uh, interesting is that I haven't. Uh, what you might call to be uh, experience any drugs ever. This mm -hmm. is something that uh, I'm quite afraid of. Uh, almost, I have a paranoia. It's just I don't know whether I don't. I think that my brain cannot handle this sort of stuff, right? Right. And I'm quite fearful. But I have been reading people uh, accounts, first-hand accounts of people who are uh, taking not drugs but poison to create a vibe for themselves, a vibe of, uh, majority of the times, a vibe of dysphoria, pure horror, mm -hmm. as a setting for a certain sort of thinking. And these are, for me, quite fascinating, particularly when I'm looking at, uh, you know, that's, uh, for example, this sort of poison, usually alkaloids, create this sort of vibes. And within these vibes, there are certain sorts of uh, uh, feelings or uh, makeshift emotions are possible that are not otherwise possible in a sort of regular, you know, uh, atmosphere yeah. of feeling or experience. Coming back to apples again, Newton was sitting under a tree when a the theory of gravity came to him. Would we gesture or venture that perhaps there was something important about the fact he was sitting under a tree to think those thoughts with? Most probably, yes. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, um, the historian uh, and physicist uh, Julian Barber Julian Barber actually has a, a magnificent book called, uh, I think it's uh, History of Dynamics, right? Okay. And he not only talks about Newton, uh, but also Galileo, Einstein, and Copernicus in the same way that there is, in fact, uh, what you might call to be vibe that enables this sort of gestural mental imaging. Which leads me on to the sort of the next part of the interview, actually. Um, you said that you going about your day-to-day -day life, woodworking, gardening. And when you are, when you are thinking, would, where would you say that the thoughts are taking place? Do they have a location? No. They're no. fundamentally dislocated. What about when you're lying in bed at night? and it's dark, would you say that you're present in your head or are you elsewhere inside your body? Um, now, this is quite interesting. I absolutely do not think uh, purposefully uh, in, in this sort of uh, environments like dark or when in bed, mm -hmm. precisely because, uh, you know, that feeling of thinking becomes too heavy. It's like as if I am breathing and I can feel breathing, like a cognitive asthma. <laughs> becomes wow. almost, okay. you know, uh, yeah. which, which becomes extremely uncomfortable for me. But when mm -hmm. I'm actually doing uh, a stuff uh, that 
doesn't bring the consciousness of thinking uh, to me, then I can actually think freely and enjoy it and doing mm -hmm. it all the time. But when I actually do it in that sort of environment, I be become aware of it and that awareness creates a certain sort of anxiety, fundamental anxiety and discomfort. So in previous discussions I've had with friends, that, that state of mind, perhaps, when you're having anxiety about trying to think the thoughts. It's I not would even say, trying, I would yeah. say. It's just the weight of it. It's like as mm. I'm, I'm becoming aware of thinking. I do not want mm. to be aware of, become aware of thinking. I want to just do it all the time. Would you say that's mining versus perhaps discovering or uncovering yes yes I, I, that's a that's a very good way to put it absolutely yes when you are going about your business and you're thinking you know you're ex, you're free to explore or uncover ideas what happens when you have a new idea or you uncover a new idea that's just you know it's passed into your mental awareness yes what happens next is there a kind of pinhole revelation where a complete idea is just fully formed? Or is it a, a cascade that you need to like, when we use the architecture, no, the, sorry, the archaeology um, metaphor, are you uncovering it with a, with a brush, you know? Uh, I think it, it's, uh, it's both, I would say. Uh, it is kind of like again the day, uh, image of the ball and the table. So I just see this fate thing, right? It's sufficient for me to uh, work with it. Do you orient yourself towards it? No, uh, no. no, absolutely not. No, uh, it's uh, it's uh, coming back to that sort of blender metaphor or allegory <laughs> of the cave, right? Uh, I see it. I. I uh, see that idea and I start to uh, shift my position in the room and then now, now starting to see it from different perspectives as if I'm launching different satellites satellites on this uh, mm -hmm. idea from different directions yeah and each of them give me a kind of a patchwork of certain sorts of textures problems cracks and then I start to put them together and then I Majority of the times, I, then I, it, it seems that when I am doing this, uh, in the image, that idea, instead of uh, becoming more pronounced, it starts to deteriorate, like rust okay. uh, or rot or decay of the idea uh, happens. Uh, and it, it really it starts to crumble. So I have to change again my position, uh, uh, find a, a better kind of what you might call to be a perspective, and then rescue some of the pieces of that idea. And it's quite actually interesting. In that sort of setup, I uh, tend to forget quite fast and easy, mm. which is actually good. Um, I think that the art of forgetting is is uh, is a fundamental uh, to rescuing good ideas. You're listening to Experience on Computer with my guest, philosopher Reza Negrestani. If you're enjoying this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps out with the algorithm. Thanks. Now back to the show.
So you've been through this process or experience, let's say, um, an idea has come into your awareness and you've, you've launched your satellites and then we're, we're moving towards this rotting or rusting phase. Do you have to act quickly if you feel like the idea is important enough to write it down? Oh, 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 absolutely. Unfortunately, my working memory is not that great. My long-term yeah. memory is absolutely fantastic. I have to bring it down uh, to the level of writing. And writing then for me becomes a prosthesis uh, yes. to continue uh, you know, fleshing out and systematically work with it. For me, writing is not really part of different from thinking. Writing is actually where the real thinking is yes. being done. Would you handwrite it in a notebook? I hate, I hate, uh, I, I do uh, sometimes uh, do hand, uh, using hand, but I find it quite primitive. <laughs> I, I love keyboards precisely because yep. keyboard has a certain sort of economy of your yes. fingers and you see uh, the things and uh, quite interesting that I, I, to this day, I don't actually type with all of my fingers. I have only two fingers, uh, which, you know, I use. Uh, so I think that uh, why do I need to type fast? If, my, if the speed of my typing doesn't correspond to my speed of thought. So I have to slow down my typing ability to correspond with my speed of thinking. So you think slower than you can type it. Absolutely. Yes. So the thinking happens on the page. On the screen. Yes. To this day, uh, I don't want to exaggerate about this, but the, the screen, when I see things are being typed, uh, it's like almost a miracle. Like <laughs> humanity only needed to survive to see this miracle of the screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what software do you type in? Uh, I actually have this, uh, you know, uh, sublime text, which I, you know, it's a text, uh, you know, sufficient. Uh, I, I type it there, uh, everything. And the, the background is usually uh, a little bit uh, grayish. And uh, yeah, I'm not really... Uh, I know that people, uh, particularly, have so many friends who are uh, you know, quite obsessed with the interface, either to be completely distraction-free or having a nice uh, user interface. That's to me is not really that interesting. Uh, no, I can I can do it in, anywhere on the screen as long as it's on the screen. The next question is: is what kinds of computing do you do, and is there a difference between what you use? a phone for and what you use the laptop for? I mean, everything I do is laptop. Even, for example, when someone text messages me on phone, I have the app on the desktop. I have to write it. Yes. Yeah. Also, uh, th there is something I have noticed that um, it's quite actually severe and it's become more severe in the past uh, 10 years, I'd say. Uh, when I write, uh, particularly text messages or even in writing, uh, when I'm writing a book or something, an essay, I think 
or I have the impression of writing a word down as I have been thinking, but then I send a message or I uh, you know, look at it later and I notice that some words are completely missing as if I had the impression of writing this, but it never really happened. There is a, a conflict between yeah. what I remember of writing and uh, you know, what, it, what actually happened. I'd like to push that a little further and ask you about the cursor on the screen. I Basically, wanted to say that cursor yeah. is absolutely that, that uh, you said, you know, the screen, I said, I wanted to say that the screen, uh, yes, good. Uh, but in terms of software, I'm not picky about it. But that is what is really important to me is that cursor, that blinking. When you press on a key on the keyboard, what is happening at the site of the cursor? Is the cursor generating the letters for you or are the letters already there and you're uncovering them? What's going on? It generates, yes, it generates. Mm. Supposedly it's kind of like, a, uh, kind of like have the impression that it's a, like a direct neural link yeah. uh, to my brain, right? Uh, yeah. And that's why I said that sometimes I actually, um, it becomes, uh, the screen becomes so much uh, part of me that I really don't see that I haven't actually typed a word. And then continue the sentence without that word, thinking that, oh, you know, this miraculously happened or should have happened on the screen. Mm -hmm. Because how can it not? Isn't it directly <laughs> yeah. linked to my brain? Yeah. <laughs> Presumably you have some sort of sensation. You think the word, you type the word, the word appears on the screen. And do you feel like you're leaving yourself on the page? Yes. It just really, uh, uh, a very, um, uh, yeah, disquieting, uh, but also comfortable feeling, uh, in a, in a, when I'm reflectively dis disquieting, when I reflect on it, but this, I'm comfortable. It's the page. It's as if it's really me. Mm. It's really my brain. I don't even see that it's a distinct sort of, you know, a surface or a place. When you are writing or typing into the screen, do you feel like there's some sort of um, your presence is moving into the digital? It's hard to say that whether I am moving to the screen or a screen is becoming part of me. Mm -hmm. It's just, uh, I haven't reflected on this, but, it's, but as I said, it's like when I am really engaged with writing, there is absolutely, uh, I cannot really discern a barrier here. It yeah. is like, it is like literally an extension of me. So I'm a former concert grade flautist in a former life and went to study music and philosophy. Um, and towards the end of my period of, um, performing at concert level, I would have described my relationship with my flute as co-continuous. Would you say that that's a fair description of what's happening when you're working with the page or on the page? Yes, absolutely. It is, uh, and 
this is uh, this is actually quite an interesting when you we want to do, if you are going to bring the idea of tool making or uh, tools and yes uh, certainly there are mm-hmm. this sort of uh, you know uh, power uh, to what you might call to be consciousness well I wouldn't use the word consciousness because it's a very clunky word but for now let's put it that way uh, mm-hmm. even though it's a very clunky bad philosophical uh, vocab. Uh, is that yes, consciousness has this uh, sort of plasticity to reach out on a subpersonal, subaware uh, level to extend itself. Yes, certain sort of tools or uh, you know objects and become part of it, and that's that creates a kind of a, a double-edged sword. Precisely, it it, it shows that. Uh, Consciousness can become even alien to itself. And that's, that is ultimately what you might call to be the unconscious. The unconscious is when the appearance of consciousness becomes alien to itself. It's a mode of alien mode of appearance of consciousness to itself. I recently wrote an essay about people in the 1970s or the term um, the pinball wizard. My argument was or is that people who would who were really good at pinball do that consciousness migration into a pinball machine where they become, you know, one with the tool or the machine that's there. And the bed of the pinball machine is actually the world in which their consciousness is operating inside. People usually have talked about it in terms of gestural uh, abilities. Uh, the idea of gesture right. that uh, was used by Gilles Châtelet. And for example, uh, Châtelet talks about Einstein, uh, you know, putting himself uh, in the shoe of a photon, uh, you know, migrating across the space time at inconceivably uh, fast space uh, speeds. Mm-hmm. Or Faraday puts himself uh, as, as this little man in an electrical circuit to see the flow of electromagnetic yeah. field. It makes me wonder about the rosary and the amount of time I've spent with, the, with it as, a, as an object. Yes, I mean, that's, a, that's another good example. I mean, uh, you mean rosary beads, right? Yes, yes. Yes, I mean, this is, I mean, uh, particularly in Iran, people uh, do a lot of stuff with rosary beads, not just, you know, <laughs> praying, but like counting, you know, keeping uh, accounts, keeping lists, all sorts of stuff, which is quite actually fascinating. So we're talking about extended cognition and tools. And I'd like to talk to you about your work and current thinking on AI. Um, but first, do you have a favorite video game? Um, I mean, I have a series of favorites. I don't have any a specific favorite for anything, really, even <laughs> books or philosophy. But I have a series of favorite video games. Uh, yes, I mean, um, you know, I, I mean early shooter games like Blood, uh, you know, when, for example, a strategy games Call to Power, which was extremely weird game, uh, you know, Baldur's Gate, this sort of stuff. Yes. Mm-hmm. Would you say that your spatial memories of places, explorations, um, 
perhaps even parts of the menu in those games. Do you think about them spatially? By spatially, I mean um, architecturally. Or do you think about them in some other way? Um, no. My example that I would use is like a strategy game, whether it's like Civilization, Red Alert, Total War. Um, they're complicated menus. They have like depth and every menu has all these layers of depth and it's quite structural sensation. When I think about the user interface of, of a game like Starcraft, actually Starcraft 2 is probably the best best example not only is there a kind of spatial memory of the places in the game but also they kind of have this spatial memory of the of the user f interface as well right yes i mean uh, i wouldn't call it depth for me but it has a certain sort of uh like a ramifying path of space uh could you explain that uh yes it, 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 in the sense you know um I would say that uh, it definitely puts me in in a certain sort of uh, you know mode uh, of cognition where you know when you open a door, uh, this is kind of like let's get rid of the you know um, any sort of characteristics of this door, and this door opens other sorts of doors, and then you have to navigate mm. the sort of uh, a space, uh, or yes. when you draw a line. Uh, and, you know, this line uh, starts to break or ramifies, uh, then you have to navigate this. That, that sort of a space is what I call a, you know, ramifying uh, space path. Uh, absolutely. It's kind of a navigational, uh, I wouldn't call it a spatial, a navigational mm. sort of feeling. Now that you say the word navigation, I think that's probably actually a, a better word for the sensation that I when I think about the relationship between the simulation that's playing out in the world that's unfolding, right? And then the, the user interface that I have with all the, all the levers to be able to influence the world, you navigate it rather than... Yes, yes. Uh, <clears throat> yes, and absolutely. It's, uh, and I think I find it quite fascinating precisely because of its navigational uh, quality. And when we are talking about navigation, uh, you know, it's, uh, obviously it has uh, fundamentally computational properties too. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, we are talking uh, about, uh, you know, um, paths uh, which might be asynchronous to one another, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some running parallel with one another, some not, uh, some at different scales. Loops. Uh, loops, yes. Uh, and this comes back to this idea of, you know, uh, this is ultimately what computation is. And uh, it's a theoretical form, uh, you know, the whole idea of, you know, uh, concurrency, uh, games uh, in, a, in a computational sense, uh, logic of computability. Uh, Mm. We can think about the chessboard in terms of uh, different layers of boards uh, that, yeah. you know, ramify from this universal board to, you know, different sort of boards. And players who play on these boards might not have uh, all be synchronous with one another, their plays. 
it makes me think about the kind of terminology that we use in computing. Some of it that's left over or perhaps just instilled within within the ideas of computing. But with the current discussions around AI that are happening, especially with image synthesis models, I mean, we were talking about the cursor earlier as well. Um, that's why it comes to mind. Are you typing a command? Like, is it a command line or a prompt? What's the difference between those two things? And is it important, do you think? I mean, um, at least from my naive understanding, the command, um, you know, you have a specific uh, protocol that ought to be implemented, right? Whereas with prompt, it's like a spawn spell mm -hmm. in, in, in games, right? You yes. spawn a demon, right? A spawn an angel or, uh, you know, some sort of air uh, entity or something that you have, uh, you have, I wouldn't call it no control over it, but the control over it is mitigated. So there are consequences that are not completely foreseen. And that would be a prompt for me. Right. I see. So in, in so a command in some senses is like laying the path in front of you or and, and the prompt is 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 revealing the path or mm, that's a bad that that, that uh, what you might call to be ramifying a space path. Yes. Uh, and do you think in which case the design of this kind of user interface around um interacting with artificial intelligence is going to be almost as complicated a design space as the design of neural nets or the you know the the method of of training uh, pro probably yes i would say that uh <clears throat> maybe not now that it's not as complicated but it has the potential to be as complicated if not uh precisely because uh, uh it's uh, we are getting into a territory of uh, gamification of the interaction yes. between the user and the uh, essentially the whatever uh, AI uh, or mm -hmm. protocol or algorithm might be. There's a really good paper um, by Anne Buckles. Her PhD was on people that played the very first interactive fiction game adventure. So she predates game studies, essentially. But one of the things that she says, um, the interaction with with this game space, which is a sort of generic term, let's use as a placeholder for interacting with artificial intelligence. And she says that the two things that someone has to do um, is how do you communicate with the computer slash narrator, because the computer is the narrator in interactive fiction. And the second thing that must be done is to figure out how to make moves. Maybe perhaps extending this metaphor of making moves in game space and figuring out how those things work in terms of exploring artificial intelligence and um, the AI models are a world model. Right. No, I mean, that's, that's an interesting uh, proposition, you know, initiating a move has, of course, consequences. I can see how, how it can be understood in this sort of way. Um, I mean... Uh, with, I know that uh, people recently in the past decade uh, have been working on intersection of interactive fiction, um, interactive forms of logic, uh, and computation as interaction. 
here's a question actually how much sort of logic of language have you done in philosophy logic of language uh in in what sense uh um I just remember all of my lectures at university using Logicola, you know, where you have to um, program Socrates is a man, all men are bachelors, therefore um, Socrates is a bachelor or whatever, and there's a three-stage, you know, therefore A equals C, that kind of logic of language, a bit like Wittgenstein, where it drifts into mathematics almost. Oh yes, yeah. No, I'm 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 familiar with it. I mean, uh, yes. I mean, uh, I have you know kind of a, you know minimal understanding. I would say in, mm. uh, of, yeah. of this of of essentially uh, you know developments in logic. We're basically logic here being uh, you know uh, a kind of uh, a bridge between uh, you know linguistic behavior. Uh, mathematical structures and computational processes. Yes, exactly. Because um, I've always struggled with that kind of symbolic logic in philosophy. And I wonder if the philosophers who are really good at it, as mathematicians are, have some sort of maths eye rather than a mind's eye, where they experience these symbols as, as being more, more real than I do. Yes. Uh, I would say that Probably uh, philosophers. I I haven't seen a philosopher, uh, you know, being capable of uh, looking at symbols like that. Mm. They're good at defining, you know, certain sort of, you know, uh, you know, logical uh, uh, functions and uh, you know what happens inside, you know, the linguistic realm. Uh, but thinking it in mathematical way, uh, hard to say. Mm. I haven't. Uh, I haven't actually. Yes, there are uh, uh, some, but the mathematics behind it is quite antiquated. Uh, it, it, usually around uh, model theory and this sort of thing in mathematics, um, and it kind of it stops, and that's also uh, you know quite advanced. Uh, but it stops at that level of model theory. It hasn't got into the you know computational properties and mathematical structures, uh, yeah. higher mathematical structures. There are people who are working on this sort of stuff, but I wouldn't call them uh, philosophers. They're rather logicians mm -hmm. of a philosophical background. So it's kind of like your your trade changes. Philosophers are generally, I have noticed that they are not good at uh, this sort of stuff unless they have a fundamental, a special education, formal education. But I would say that this co uh, complaint about philosophy goes also the other way. That mathematicians or scientists in general uh, have almost, in my idea, have minimum amount of philosophical understanding. And this is, as usually, you have noticed that the whole uh, anti-philosophical uh, knee-jerk reactionism that is in vogue uh, among scientists and mathematicians is just an excuse to do bad philosophy. You know, uh, yeah. a really vulgar, vulgar, naive, mystical sort of philosophy that scientists think that they are entitled to. I wasn't going to bring this up, actually, um, given the time. But you spoke about Kant and Hassel 
and we were talking about the mind's eye and the imagination and the fact that I don't have a visual mind's eye. And it's about 3% of the population that I'm in company of. And it makes me wonder if there's been some assumptions in philosophical discourse for a, a very long time. Because the first example that we have anyone talking about the ability to create um, uh, in the mind's eye is Aristotle in uh, De Anima, where uh, in part three, where he's talking about um, how humans have kind of, what's the term, psychic faculty, I guess, or sixth sense, where he coins the term phantasia. It's the capacity of, of um, between perception and thought, the difference um, that we've been discussing throughout the show today. But one of the things that he says, and I've got the quote right here, is that he says that in virtue of which an image occurs to us, and he's talking about thoughts and dreams and, and memories. And then he goes on, um, whenever one contemplates, one necessarily at the same time contemplates in images. And well, he's just wrong. So this seems to me like very bad philosophy, because not everyone, you know, necessarily thinks or contemplates in images, if you're someone like me with athantasia. And it strikes me that perhaps that there's some sort of because it's so unusual that this kind of thinking has just become not ingrained, but I don't know, taken for granted in the philosophical canon. Well, I mean, uh, it is in interesting to, uh, and you know, I'm kind of anti-Aristotelian from a philosophical standpoint. Mm. Uh, I, I would say that to the credits uh, of uh, Aristotle, I would say that the nature of uh, fantasia or phantasm. Is, is quite actually complex precisely because when uh, it probably is a translation issue here, because uh, even in Greek philosophy, uh, phantasms have different sorts of scales and gradations yes. and, and categories, right? Mm -hmm. Different sorts of qualities. Um, but, in, but, but yes, it, it seems as if image in the canonical sense or in the uh, ordinary sense being proposed here, which I think is absolutely wrong. But I would say that probably Arsal doesn't want to go that route. Right. Uh, precisely because he has uh, access, uh, by way of, of course, Plato, different sorts of images. Yeah, and that's what I was going to bring up, because the Deanima sort of re-enters the Western world about 1000 AD, and then it, um, and then it proceeds to get bound up with the rediscovery of the, you know, the... Neoplatonic um, explosion that happens through the Renaissance, well, I guess the late Middle Ages through the Renaissance, and I'm wondering if um, the idea of Plato's forms, um, when you are philosophizing on Plato's forms, are you thinking of like images of a form of a chair or a form of a ball? No, no, no. That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that. <laughs> No, 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 no. no. Um, um, it's actually quite interesting that uh, you know, bringing Aristotle uh, and also, of course, Plato and the later uh, you know philosophers. Uh, uh, what happens is that there is this, uh, even though it's a rudimentary, there is, as I said, uh, a kind of distinction between different sorts of images. In, in philosophy. And each of these images have their own mode of presentation uh, 
acts of presentation, right? And these acts of presentation seem to, in philosophy, down the line, getting all jumbled together, confounded, right? Uh, to, uh, so on and so that, uh, that essentially leads to this sort of, you know, uh, what you might call to be blanket uh, sort of thesis about imagination, thinking, mm -hmm. perception, so on and so forth. But the fundamental task of philosophy from the get-go, at least from starting from, uh, you know, pre-Socratic, uh, uh, and I like would be Plato, is to explicate these acts and their corresponding, you know, uh, objects, of, mm -hmm. uh, cognition or imagination or images. Yes. Uh, but as I said, in the history of philosophy, they do get confounded. Uh, and the situation has become even worse, particularly if uh, people who are familiar with philosophy of mind, that uh, the idea of being thrown around as if there is a consensus about what they actually are or what they are referring to, like consciousness, mm -hmm. mind, perception, image, there is, unfortunately, at this point, the situation has become so bad that I don't think that there is a universal crud cutter to, to as a go-to solution to get rid of this sort of, uh, what you might call to be metaphysical grunge. Uh, 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 this is a source of confusion. It requires a certain sort of uh, conceptual engineering, which I haven't seen uh, quite rarely, of course, in uh, philosophy of mind or yeah. phenomenology of perception. And yet you can read something like the Yoga Sutras <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, and they are very clear and explicit. You know, I've, I've done 10 years of meditation at this point and I will experience something and come to an understanding of a, a certain working of mind and you find a line in um, the Yoga Sutras and it's, yes, that's exactly it. Yes. Uh, it is interesting that, I mean, uh, for example, when I mentioned Husserl, Husserl has uh, almost seven or eight acts of presentation and each of these acts carry their own different images, right? Builds in German. And, and they have their own consciousness, uh, act of consciousness that, uh, mm, that correspond with these uh, builds or images. That's, that's for me is fascinating precisely because at this point, philosophy enters uh, the realm of uh, concept, concept engineering. Uh, you, you have to see things at different scales, uh, as different acts and objects, uh, which, you know, this is, more of an, an engineering enterprise rather than, you know, mishmashy philosophy. I haven't thought about Hassel since I was at university, but now I'll have to maybe um, wade in to the uh, weighty tome. I've been reading Whitehead recently. Okay. I don't want to uh, digress uh, too much and please do uh, bring me back, uh, you know, to the right course. But yes, I mean, I think that uh, there are really magnificent philosophers uh, who are doing this sort of, uh, have been doing this sort of stuff. Uh, but it seems that 
these moments in philosophy where people um, doing the nitty gritty uh, thinking about yeah. these sorts of uh, phenomena uh, is the moment when they're doing something else other than philosophy, or at least they are trying to diverge uh, from the main philosophical current. Do you think that when we or they are thinking these thoughts and, you know, as, as you say, getting into the nitty gritty of the philosophical experience, do you think what they're actually doing, or perhaps is um, even what you're doing sometimes, is codifying their own experience of the human condition? Um, yes, codifying it. But this codification, I think, that comes with a certain sort of, in the, at least for good philosophers, with a certain sort of modesty. Uh, mm -hmm. In the sense that this uh, uh, the codified human experience doesn't get bloated or inflated, mm -hmm. and and hence cannot be overextended over the or entirety of human yes mm -hmm. over the uh, entirety of human condition. But it is a codification through which we can also see certain sort of common conditions of possibility for thus yes. and so mechanism and phenomena or acts being possible in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that's, for me, it's just like, you know, uh, basically why I'm so interested in Kant precisely because Kant does, in fact, uh, the, the idea of the critique is finding these conditions of possibility, right? And then, mm -hmm. of course, we can then, within this condition of possibility, see massive and ocean of diversities and atypical behaviors. Yes, which leads me to my last question, really. Um, and that's just on, on intelligence. And while, of course, this is your, your particular subject um, and coming back to sitting in front of your computer or interacting with video games in the UX, I'm just wondering about your views on the navigation of the user experience as well as you know the computation that's happening inside the program and your views on on that kind of intelligence coming the other way through the screen or you know through the tool that you're using yes and, and i would say that the the intelligence for me is uh, this is uh, you know the, the, of course this is like being detailed and uh in uh, intelligence and a spirit, but of course not fleshed out in any sort of uh, cohesive way that I'm happy mm -hmm. with. And well, of course, it's, you know it, that that book was supposed to be simply a, a groundwork for doing further work, and any sort of groundwork, you know, made of dirt and crap, really. Uh, so uh, the the point that is uh, persistent in the book is that this intelligence doesn't come simply from the you know the AI that the computer uh, and you can actually extend the allegory here to all sorts of stuff is really not just the interaction between the algorithms and stuff but it's interaction between the user and the algorithm right. as a specific sort of computation mm -hmm. of a highly complex structure. And you can see this in the intersubjective, uh, you know, domain of language, linguistic interaction within algorithms themselves is the interaction 
and the formulation of interaction that is important and where basically the scaffolding of intelligence comes from. And to me, I am really interested in this screen, but what I'm really interested in is me and the screen. Yeah, that's exactly the same thing that I'm interested in also. Well, Reza, thank you so much for this conversation. It has been an honor. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, this was, uh, I must say that, uh, quite unconventional conversation, which I absolutely loved. Uh, you know, people usually don't want to, uh, or don't want to engage in this sort of, you know, kind of intimate inside people's heads, what's happening, which is quite a refreshing, uh, thing to me. Thank you very much. Would you like to tell the audience who are still with us where they can find you on the internet and what you're up to and anything they look, can look forward to? Um, I have this uh, blog which has been, you know, uh, defunct uh, for quite some time, but I plan to revive it. It's called Toy Philosophy. Once in a while, I go on social media, but not so much when I'm working. Uh, as I said, I'm working on uh, a couple of projects, but the, my main emphasis is on this book on inner time consciousness and its relation with consciousness or alien modes of appearance. And of course, a novel should naturally come out of it or in parallel with it or a comic. Mm -hmm. An alien abduction scenario would be a fitting choice. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Reza. Absolutely. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Be well. That was Experience.Computer with Reza Negarastani. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with social thinker and writer Dougald Hine. This episode of Experience.Computer was created and produced by me, Jay Springett. Intro music by Paul T.Q. Freeman. Outro music by Lawrence Steele. Find more episodes of the show at Experience.Computer and you can find more about me and my work at my blog, thejmo.net. Thanks for listening. <laughs>